Good evening. It's good to be with you. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I, I think the, the songs that we have sung and the scriptures that's been read and the, the prayers that have been offered up by Pastor Adrian have really done a wonderful job of um, the setting the table for the feast that I pray the Holy Spirit has prepared for us in, in God's Word tonight. Um, I, I bring to you a simple message. Um, actually, it's the same message I bring every time I'm here. And I'm sure the pastors of this church agree with me that we're so grateful that there are people out there who pay us to say the same thing every single week when we get up here. It's the message of God's free grace. Uh, you need to hear that tonight. And, and the reason I know you need to hear it is because I need to hear it. And so we're going to... Um, to, to hear now God speaking to us about the wonderful gift of the gospel from Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read the ten, first ten verses there, and then we'll uh, hone in in verse 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, and it stands forever. Well, I'm sure you agree with me that interruptions uh, are frustrating any kind of interruption, right? You have a certain train of thought and an interruption derails it. You, you chart a certain course and an interruption delays you or detours you. Um, e even tonight, we kind of had to uh, change our plans uh, for getting up here. We got a text message from a congregant who lives in Martin, and they said, uh, hey, the, the traffic is, the, you know, they've closed the, the lane on 131, and, and the traffic is just it's dead stopped, and you're going to need to leave pretty early to get up to, to Wyoming. So I text Dale, and I say, you're going to need to leave pretty early to get down to um, uh, Kalamazoo. And, of course, uh, as we're going up, there's no traffic at all. So I think Dale is probably sitting in the parking lot for 45 minutes, <laughs> Kalamazoo. Um, that's a different kind of interruption, interruption that never occurred. Uh, but interruptions are frustrating. Uh, I'm learning that more and more with young children, and funny how when we're doing road trips, they take a lot longer to get from point A to point B, because we have to do all these potty breaks and, and pit stops, and that takes time. But can interruptions ever be a good thing? 
we encounter an interruption in, in this text in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is laying out for us the uh, consequences of the fall and the trajectory that sin is sending the world and the entire human race, but then something stops that trajectory. There's an interruption, and it's a divine interruption. Our passage is telling us that God steps in and foils humanity's plans. Does that sound frustrating? It's actually the most freeing thing in the world. And we want to learn from this interruption today as we zoom in and we're going to examine just two words. I, I rarely do this when I preach, but tonight we're going to look at just two words. Verse 4 in the Greek, Detheos, in English, but God. But God. The late minister James Boyce, who used to minister in Philadelphia, said while preaching on this text, he says, may I put it quite simply, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. And if you recall them daily, and if you live by them, they will transform your life completely. That's what I want for you, brothers and sisters. I want your life to be transformed. I want you to leave this place with these two words tucked into your heart. I want there to be a spring in your step as you head to your car, because you know the life-transforming, the soul-changing power of these two words, but God. And let's start with learning what these words, though, teach us about the world. We want to consider what they teach us about the world, and then secondly, what they teach us about God Himself, but then finally, what they teach us about us. But first, about the world. What does it say about our world that we need a, a but God to take place? Well, it doesn't tell us anything good. It's telling us that the world is a bad, scary, and dangerous place, and you don't need the Bible to figure that out. You don't need me to get up here and, and to tell you that. In fact, I'm sure many of you are here tonight because you know the world is a, is a bad place, it is a disappointing place, and you're looking for hope, you're looking for answers outside of this world, and you're saying, Pastor, preach to me, tell me, what, 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 what can I do as I find myself in this world? You don't need me to get up here and tell you that the world is messed up. I mean, just look at the headlines, right? Any brief scan on any given day will tell you that fact. Uh, just as an example, these are the, I subscribe to um, a couple different news resources that, that um, try to wake me up every morning by emailing me um, what I need to know to, to get up and get out, uh, going to work and stuff, and uh, one of them sends me five top stories every day. So this is just one day I picked from last week, um, the top five items that I received in my inbox. Number one, Fauci warns that hospital ICUs will soon be overrun with COVID-19 cases. Number two, following brutal fighting and heavy casualties, the Taliban have claimed victory in Afghanistan's Panjir province, meaning the Taliban now controls every Afghan province. Number three, since Hurricane Ida left its devastation, looters are running rampant through hard-hit parts of the country, and more than a half a million people are without power in Louisiana. Number four, at least 46 people, including 11 children, were shot in Chicago over the weekend. Number five, bodies floating downstream into Sudan reveal what appears to be a phase of ethnic cleansing in Ethiopia. That was on a Monday. Can't imagine the, the week getting much better after that, right? 
Need we say more? We know the world is messed up. We don't need Scripture for that, but Scripture does tell us why the world is messed up, why it's the way that it is, and we learn that in our text. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Mankind is dead. That's the operative word when Paul is describing the world. Dead. You see, the reason uh, that, that, that the world is so messed up the reason that there are wars and crimes and, and oppression and abuse and scandal and, and ethnic cleansing, it's not because there's just a few bad eggs out there. It's because we all, by nature, every single one of us, are dead in sin. This is the only meaningful explanation for the madness of the world. And this is what sin does to us. It enslaves us in death, the world is filled, we could say the world is filled with the walking dead. Now, you might say, well, I've never killed anyone. I've never participated in any sort of ethnic cleansing. Don't, don't claim that I'm part of this culture of death. But what does Paul say it means to actually be dead in sin? What does that look like? What does that mean? He says it means we carry out the desires of the body and the mind. To be dead in sin means you're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to yourself. It means we're enslaved to our our own fleshly lusts. We're driven by sinful desires. We lie. We steal. We cheat. We become angry. We succumb to sexual temptation. We, We laugh at vulgarity. We promote indecency. And all of these things lead to death because the wages of sin is death. So when we sin, we're doing nothing less than living life from the grave. That's what it is to sin, friends, to live life from the grave. And dead people don't get up out of the grave and walk. Or, or put another way, societies can't, can't pick themselves up by their bootstraps and, and have a moral reformation. It's just not going to happen. Martin Lloyd-Jones assesses the situation like this. Now, he's writing decades ago, but it's so insightful. I want to read it. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but please hang in there. It's, it's worth it. This is what he says. If it is the state of man in sin that has been responsible for the history of the past, obviously, while man remains unchanged, the history of the future is going to be unchanged. Here we confront and come into collision with the optimism of the natural man who is always so sure and confident that somehow or another, we in our generation can put things right. He feels that whereas all other generations who have gone before have failed, we are in a different position, in a superior position. We are educated and cultured. We know whereas they did not know. We have advanced so much. We must succeed. We're going to succeed. But, he says, if you believe the biblical doctrine of man in sin, you must see at once that this, at once, that this is a fatal fallacy. If our troubles are due to the lusts that are in mankind in sin and which control men while they remain, those lusts remain, there will be wars. If we grasp this teaching, we shall be delivered at once from all the false enthusiasm and the false hopes of men who really believe that by bringing in some new organization you can outlaw war or banish it forever. But the answer of the Bible is that you cannot do so while man remains unregenerate. 
And then he asks, is this depressing? My reply is that whether it is depressing or not is not our concern. We should be concerned to know the truth. And this is the truth. So it's critical we come to terms with our sin, with the sinfulness of sin, with the trajectory that sin sends us individually, corporately, as, as, as a human race. It's critical we, we understand what it means to be dead in our trespasses and under the wrath of God. And it's so important because if we don't grasp that reality, these two words, but God, won't mean a thing to us. But once we know, once we know our state, our condition apart from Christ, these tiny words become words of life, everlasting life for us. Words that pierce the darkness and the gloom of our fallen world. Words that point to hope and words that bring us out of despair. And so, while but God teaches us about the greatness of sin, it also teaches us about the greatness of God. The fact that, that He's able, that He's capable of, of turning things around. That can only be said of God. Paul is giving us the trajectory of humanity, the world spinning into chaos, but God. He's the one who can change it. He's the one who can turn things around. And it's only God who can do that. When will we learn that? You know? Every four years or so, we start to think maybe there's somebody else who could do that. Uh, maybe there's a particular political candidate or, or party who can change things around in our country and fix things that make us great again. But you turn to Ephesians 2, and it doesn't say but Trump. It doesn't say but SCOTUS. It doesn't say but Pelosi. It says but God. But God. Who else could change the course of the entire world but the one who made it? This little phrase is teaching us about the bigness of God. A.W. Pink says, He who cannot do what he will and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. But he can do what he wills. He does do what he wills. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And so, we read, But God. He's a, he's a powerful God. He's a sovereign God. He can change the course of the world. He has this power, and what we're learning here, though, is He's not only he's, is He great, but, but He's gracious. He's good, because He's using all that power that He has to turn the world around and to change our course for our good, for our benefit. Right, God, God could have left the world to spin into chaotic destruction after the fall. God could have left man to live out the cursed consequence of the fall. He could have put his foot down. Uh, those of us, when we're in positions of authority, maybe parents especially, we know that when you know, we make a decision, we make a determination, and we might anticipate that there would be some pushback, what do we say? We make our determination and we'll say, and no buts about it, right? Boys and girls, you've heard this. You know, mom and dad say, go clean your room. Or quit fighting with your sibling. 
or you need to finish your, your dinner. No buts about it. No buts about it. I, I put my foot down. This is the way we're doing things. I'm not going to change my mind. God had made a determination that the day that, that Adam and Eve would, would eat of the forbidden fruit, they would die. In the Hebrew it says, they would die a deadly death. There would be an eternal death that would come. That's, that's the determination he made. That, that they would be cursed forever. That humanity would be doomed to live a life of exile and isolation from the living Lord. That was his determination, and that could have been the end. Sin and Satan could have won out. God could have receded back into heaven's glory and, and left us to rot in our sinful and fallen condition. No buts about it. Friends, thanks be to God, we do not have a no buts about it kind of God. The gospel is the greatest intervention in the world, the greatest condescension in the world, the greatest accommodation and so the, and the entire history of humanity hinges upon these two words, but God, teaching us about His greatness and His grace, an intervening God who loves to change our course for our good. This is who He is. This is what God is all about. This is what He loves to do. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 says, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in it. Think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. The holy and just God of the universe is also a God who delights to bestow love and mercy upon people that don't deserve it at all. He loves to do that. He delights to do that. He loves and delights to show love to people that don't deserve it, and that kind of love comes at a cost. God knew what this intervention, what this interruption, what but God would take. But God is simply stated, but it is not simply accomplished because we all know here it comes at the price of the blood of His beloved Son. That's what it takes for, for but God to mean something, the death of Jesus. God knew it would mean the death of His Son, and yet to Him that isn't a reason to withhold His love. Rather, it's an opportunity to magnify His love. And so C.S. Lewis once wrote, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creations in order that He may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. Isn't that a thought? Wow. He creates the universe, already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messile nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body drops, and the torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up, and yet here in His love, 
And this is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. We heard earlier in our service from Romans chapter 5 that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God, there it is again, demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the grace of God in these two little words because they are accomplished through the death of Jesus for sinners like you and me. And so we've seen what these words are teaching us about about the world, uh, about sinful man, what, what they teach us about God and His greatness and His grace but we want to consider finally what they teach us about, about us. What, what do these words mean to you? And here we do have some really, really good news. You want to hear some good news tonight? Here's the good news. That for weak and wounded, sick and, and tired and, and perverse and discouraged and depressed and addicted and stubborn sinners, the good news is that change is a real possibility for you. Change is a real possibility. Now notice, I'm not going to say that, that you can change. I'm not going to get up here and say, yeah, you have it within you to change. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't even change my eating habits. How could I change my soul, right? I'm not going to get up here and tell you that you can change, but I am going to tell you, I do tell you, that you can be changed. You can be changed. Remember, the good news is not but me. It's but God. God loves to change sinners by His grace through faith in Christ. That's what it takes. But it's all that it takes. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 of our text. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The way we receive that divine uh, conjunction spoken from a gracious God is through faith. That's how we're saved. Well, faith in what exactly? That's what we ask next. Faith in what? Faith in God's plan of redemption. Faith that, that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this twisted world filled with the walking dead and died himself. That he took on the same penalty of the fall, that he experienced the same power of sin, but he proved that he was yet more powerful than sin because he was raised on the third day. And in, and in being raised, he showed us that he could indeed change things. He could set the world on a different trajectory. He can set you on a different trajectory. Death doesn't have to be the end of the story. Sin doesn't have to be the finale of your life. Jesus can chart a new course for you. The unregenerate and the dead are born again and are brought to life. That's what you have to believe, that Jesus can do that, that he does that for you. You have to read this text tonight and you have to say it's for you. You have to say, he died for me, he's raised for me, and these two words, but God, are for me. 
But at times, I know it's hard, right? Because I know at times the sinfulness of our sin, the stubbornness of our sin, makes us think that maybe these two words are for everybody else in the sanctuary tonight, but not for me. That, that I, I'm, I'm too lacking in zeal, or I just too quickly turn back to, to, to my old ways and these unbreakable habits that, uh, they never seem to leave. How could God really have these promises for me? But here's the thing, friends, when your sin becomes that real to you, know that you are exactly the kind of person that God loves to save and to change. A number of years ago, there was a society for the spread of atheism that published a track that tried to um, expose, it, it successfully did, I guess, expose the depravity of some of the Bible's uh, major characters. Um, so one after another in this leaflet, uh, the villainy of, of some of the great heroes of the Bible was, was described, and they would have a picture and then a little paragraph. So there's a picture of Abraham, and it said, um, really, this guy who's willing to uh, sacrifice the honor of his wife to save his own skin. Uh, he's called the friend of God, really? Or, then we go to, to Jacob, this, this cheat, this, this trickster, and yet God makes him the prince of his people. Moses, the one who mediates God's law, and yet he himself uh, is, is a murderer, really? And according to this, this track, um, David was the most offensive, uh, especially the episode with Bathsheba seducing her, then having her husband killed to cover it up. And yet this is the man after God's own heart, the leaflet complains. And it asks, what, what kind of God could find so much to praise in a man like this? Why would anybody serve him? And, and the moral failings of the Bible's main characters was proffered by this organization as the kind of clincher argument that would undermine and topple the main point of Christianity. But guys, that is the main point of Christianity. That God uses weak sinners, that He uses people who are messed up and that He loves to bestow upon them His grace. I'm grateful that we have Moses. I'm grateful that we have Abraham. I'm grateful that we have David and Jacob and these guys whose stories are not sanitized so that I can know if God loves them, he can love me. The real Christian is the one who gets these essential truths that they are a great sinner, but God is a greater Savior. That they are a worthless wretch, but God is rich in love. That they are weak, but God is strong and able and willing to save. But God, but God, but God. The Christian's the one who holds those things together in faith. Yes, I know what I am, but that doesn't change who he is. John Stott put it like this. These two monosyllables, but God... Set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and the sovereign action of God, we were the objects of wrath, but God, out of the great love with which He loved us, had mercy upon us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves, but God has raised us with Christ and set us at His own right hand in a position of honor. God has taken the action 
to reverse our condition in sin. Can you say that that is your experience tonight? Friends, do you need an intervention in your life? Do you need something to change? Do you need things to turn around? That's what God does. It's what He loves to do. It's what He excels at doing. And don't expect to change before you come to Him. And God's not even asking that of you because He knows it's an impossibility. Don't think that you need to somehow get your life in order and then you can come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is what gets your life in order. And so we sing in that, that classic hymn, uh, Come ye sinners, uh, weak and wounded, uh, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, what? You'll never come at all. So you come now. And so what are the takeaways for us tonight? Now that we know the two greatest words in the world, how should we live? Well, let me suggest for you briefly here just three points of application, three things for you to to remember as you go from this place, as you're about to enter another week in the world, how shall this change you? First, seek heavenly treasure. That's the first thing, seek heavenly treasure. Because we've seen that the world is spiraling towards destruction and that there's nothing that's going to last here. So what does that mean if you try to find your purpose, if you try to find your, your satisfaction in this world, it means nothing good. People trying to find fulfillment in, in, in money, in fame, in possessions or accomplishments, none of that's going to be here for long at all. And so the unregenerate spend their entire earthly existence seeking something that actually can't be found here, namely happiness. And as the world offers you uh, this buffet of pathetic pleasures to choose from, don't despair because you have the secret to satisfaction but God. So cling to that. Seek heavenly treasure. Secondly, cultivate a Christ-centered humility. You have something better than the world, but that doesn't mean that you are better than the world. Paul, Paul's words are, are true of every single one of us here before Christ intervened. We were dead in our trespasses. We did follow the course of this world. We were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. Paul doesn't say that these things would be true of us still were it not for our charm or our charisma or our intellect or our, our good looks or our determination or anything in us. Remember, again, it's not but me. It's but God. Uh, the, the clarion call of the Christian is this, but for the grace of God, there go I. So cultivate Christ-centered humil humility. And finally, live in gospel-fueled obedience. Gospel-fueled obedience. It's a terribly frustrating thing to try to please God in, in our own strength. It's an impossibility, actually. But if we uh, approach God's laws as a set of rules that we need to keep in order to kind of curry favor with God, then we will live our entire lives uh, in the shadow of discouragement and despair. But God tells us that we don't need to live like that. Rather, we start in the place of God's favor. We start with the knowledge that the change that God desires to see in us, He delights to give to us and to work in us. 
uh, Ephesians 2 tells us that. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. This is the ethic of, of Christian living. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul writes this in Philippians. You do it. Work it out. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his pleasure. Know tonight, friends, that the change that God desires to see in you, He Himself gives to you. And so, let these two great words, but God, spur you on to live a life of grateful obedience. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God, indeed, we are awed by Your grace uh, we look forward to an eternity where we can worship you for your work of redeeming wretches such as us. Your grace is everything to us. We have nothing apart from it. We boast only in the cross of Christ. Lord, we have seen the condition of sin, the, the condition that it has left the world, that it that it has, uh, we see the way in which it has dragged us to the grave, were it not for your intervention, your interruption in the foolish plans of humanity. Would we cherish these words, but God, as the words which open up to us the gates of heaven and glory, because it is by your condescension in Christ, your desire to bring about change in us. It is your grace and your grace alone that gets us from this world to the next. And so we lean upon that grace. We rely upon that grace. We rest in it. And so we thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand as we sing in response to God's word to us tonight. All I have is Christ.
Lift up your heads, receive your Lord's blessing. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think we need to keep singing some more after that.